Good morning. Hello again. There's 50 people in here. Good morning. How are you doing? Uh, hey, friends, let's just gather around the table. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, today, sixth and seventh commandments. Was Before I start, was anyone able or did anyone uh, take, take time to read through the uh, kind of the transcript that was in there last week from the podcast where, the, where they were talking about last week's and I left it in the packet. Um, if you get a chance, go back and read it. Uh, this week, there'll be I did a similar thing for um, the sixth and seventh commandments. Like I said, I don't agree, uh, may not necessarily agree with everything that each of these different writers um, say in their arguments about the text. But I think it's good that we see different perspectives on how people write about it. A lot of this, sometimes the information will overlap. They'll say the same thing, slightly different emphasis on one thing or another. But I think we can, we can uh, profit from that. And uh, today's no different. Um, I found it pretty interesting the way the different writers um, approach it. But here on page two, I just want to make a quick reference. You know, we've moved um, these final, final five commandments. Uh, we're in the second table. Um, you know, we mentioned last week that there, we can't dismiss there's both a vertical and a horizontal component to all of these commandments. There's obviously on the surface of these five commandments, the one last week as well, well the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Standards themselves would say is the second table. Um, the, the emphasis on the surface is certainly horizontal, um, but there's the deeper... Um, vertical uh, reality behind that and what it points to. And today's no different. Um, when I first started looking at this text, you notice these are all in red. Um, these are short, very short, actually two words for each of these two commandments apiece. Um, and, and, it, and it starts with the negative. No, low, it's the word low, you know. Uh, and so, um, you know, it would be very terse and very direct. It's low tirsah. You know, low tinaf. I mean, it's that's it. And now I've got 15 pages of stuff we're going to go over <laughs> for two words. In that, in that, but it shows us that there's obviously we're going to be reliant upon context to understand all that. I think that's a great. It was a great thing it pointed out to me the the terseness of those two commandments. It points to the reality that there's much more here, and to understand it, we've got to understand it. In, in the context of the whole of Scripture, all of redemptive history. And so uh, that's what we've been trying to do. Um, and, uh, you know, the biblical writers, uh, especially in the Hebrew writers, they were very terse, and they, there was much being said with, with a, an economy of words. But we'll start here on page 3 with the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Um, I listed just uh, like I have some of the previous weeks, uh, just some basic meaning, uh, what the commandment forbids, what it encourages, what it allows. Um, most of this is pretty self-explanatory, um, and we'll get to, uh, we'll just hit the highlights quickly. Um, meaning, life must be preserved and treated with respect. And that obviously, obviously will beg the question why. 
Um, death is a disruption of the divine order. Um, this commandment does not prohibit all killing, but specifically prohibits murder because humans are made in the image of God. There's a why. Um, scripture allows the killing of animals for food. Um, you'll see the reference text there to the right. It also allows self-defense both individually and nationally. Um, recognizes that the government can legitimately use the sword. Um, the commandment forbids all forms of unlawful killing like murder, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, um, hatred towards another person, and any act that suppress expresses hatred. Um, it encourages the following, respect for life. So you see the negative prohibition, and you see what's not expressed directly in the text, but is consequence of it, the positive aspect of it. It encourages respect for life and acts that will preserve life. Um, respect for God's creatures. Animals are not on the same level as humans. My dogs, I think, come pretty close, but they just don't quite make it. Uh, I love them, but they're not on the same plane, right? Uh, and it, it's, that, was, that was tough. Uh, love and respect for others with a willingness to help those in need. And it allows for the following. Self-defense if your life is in danger. Capital punishment. Serving as a police officer. Uh, serving in war for a just cause. These are the things all these writers are going to check the boxes, right? They're all going to come in here and they're going to check the boxes. We can all read different people and they're going to say these same things in different ways. But that's basically what they're going to say. The interesting part for me is where they start to kind of get into the weeds a little bit. And that's where I think we can learn a little bit. Um, Mr. Oswald T. Alice, um, Presbyterian uh, minister, you know, he made some uh, interesting points. He said, these commandments, which we mentioned, are brief. They're unqualified. There's no, because, of, you know, uh, thou shalt not, because of this, or in order that, or anything. There's no qualifications. It's just straight to the point, right? Da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And so <clears throat> they're unqualified. And if you'll know, uh, they're brief. And he goes straight to the point. It's the issue of the meaning of the word that's translated in some English translations as kill, think like the old King James Version, or murder. And what a difference it makes based on how that is translated in an English translation. Um, kill can be, if you just picked up an English translation and it had kill, the word there translated as kill, you can, uh, you can that, that word can be applied in different ways than murder, right? Murder seems to be more specific. And that's what these guys are going to go on and on about. Specifically, what does it mean? What does that word mean? Um, and I think it was, it was helpful to see uh, how they parse this out. For example, if you move over to page four, this, uh, the podcast I was telling you about where these guys are in just kind of conversationally approach the topic. They talk about the issue, you shall not murder, murder versus the translation in others that you shall not kill. And they said, this kind of produces this conundrum. Um, what about sacrifices? If the concept was just the killing of any life whatsoever, God's ordaining, you know, he has is, he is, uh, authorized the use of animal sacrifices in the temple, uh, you know, temple cultus of the Old Testament um, law. Um, so thou shalt not kill... Um, when, it, when people sometimes have mistakenly taken that translation of this, of this Hebrew word that's underneath it, ratzach, it sounds bad, doesn't it? It just sounds bad. 
and, and they've, they've translated it as kill and they don't qualify that or look at it in context and how it's used, it could be misleading. And it has been for some. Um, this uh, Hebrew scholar, uh, uh, Nahum Sarna, he says uh, the Hebrew term here, rasach, um, applies only to illegal killing. And unlike uh, other verbs they're used for the taking of life, it's never used in the administrative, administration of justice or for killing in war. So the way that that underlying word is used throughout the Old Testament is important. Um, it's never used in the administration of justice or in the killing of war. It's never employed when the subject of the action is God or an angel. Right? They never rasach. Right? They never... Um, it, it, he's saying it's illegitimate to argue for like pacifism or to abolish the death penalty on the basis of this, basis of this command, thou shalt not kill. There's a very specific meaning in the Old Testament about what this word uh, uh, really is conveying, right? It's, it's very limited. It's very specific. Um, and we've got to be careful we don't take it out of context. Um, he notes that Genesis 9-6 provides the rationale for this prohibition, and it's, it's specifically toward the idea of murder, um, taking of an innocent life. Um, and, it, and he points this out in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, here's the reason, for God made man in his own image. And a couple of things stand out. That's an, there's an imperative there. It's shall. Not my, may. Shall. Right? And there's a reason. Because God made man in his own image. Um, he makes an argument here that that there's an imperative that you that that um, murder um, result in the death penalty, and I think that's something we we could debate. We could go through the scriptures and see what it has to say about that. Um, it also mentions Numbers thirty-five, thirty-one. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. There's no ransom here. You know some of these. Uh, legal or uh, some of these uh, commands and rules and laws that you see in the text outside of the Ten Commandments per se but in uh, Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament covenant code there's a sense in which some of those can kind of be I wouldn't say watered down but kind of there's some contingencies there's some wiggle room so to speak um, not with these right there is no uh, there's no ransom here um, so um, you know, he did, he did mention in here, I thought it was interesting, in Second, Second Temple times, um, actually in action, you know, use of the death penalty is very rare. And you think about that in terms of their appeal for Christ to be crucified. And they weren't even really following this like the, the law said to. Um, but uh, I think the big thing here is that, uh, and you're going to see this uh, later on with Jesus, uh, he, he's going to appeal before the Mosaic. He's going to appeal in his argument about this whole issue to Genesis. It's pre-Moses, right? Pre-Ten pre Commandments. He's going back to Genesis, and he is reinterpreting it, and uh, as we're going to see, obviously fulfilling the command too. So there's more going on here, and I think uh, these, these different uh, writers were very helpful in the way that they brought some of these things out. Um, here on page 5, Sarna continues to note, he says, uh, this verb specializes, uh, this, first, this verb is referring to the killing, 
that brought illegal violence into the covenant community, right? Um, premeditated murder. Um, so there's a lot going on here uh, with the way this word is used, the way it's translated, the way people understand it. Um, and as we saw, Jesus is actually going to go back and establish a precedent in Genesis 9. Uh, Dr. Currid, I think, made a really good uh, brief uh, treatment of this. He says uh, the Hebrew word for murder is ratzak. It's 47 times in the Old Testament. In every instance but once, it speaks of one human being killing another. Never use of a person killing an animal. Um, it's never employed in the context of war or capital punishment or self-defense. Uh, it's most often is denotes planned or premeditated murder, often in the form of revenge or assassination. And um, unpre unpremeditated murder, manslaughter is actually included in this. If you look at Numbers 35, um, it's likely that suicide is included. He mentions that. And uh, he says Jesus' Jesus's interpretation of this law goes well beyond the physical act of murder. Right? It also forbids the murder of the heart. As Calvin puts it, indeed, is the, it is the hand that gives birth to murder, but it is the heart infected and inflamed with hate and anger that conceives it. Um, he's referring back to John three fifteen. Um, so I thought, you know, Currid makes he gets straight to the point, and, and he gives you some some ideas, of specific uh, specific uh, uses of the word or the concept of murder, and how the Old Testament, it, it, you know, uh, treats it. Um, Doctor Fesco has a lot longer treatment of this, and like I said last week, I really appreciate the way he addresses these texts, uh, you know, looking back through the whole course of redemptive history. He looks at the Old Testament. He looks at it in terms of um, Christ and Christ's fulfillment of these um, commandments. And he makes notes of the same things that are included and, and excluded from this um, understanding of, of uh, murder. And he, makes, he, he mentions here at the bottom of page five that vertical aspect that Godward aspect that's in, involved here. Um, whoever sheddeth man's blood, by man's blood, um, his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So Genesis 9, 6. That's, that's a key text. It's a text that Jesus is going to base his interpretation of, of the text on. Um, and he notes here, murder is an attack on God himself. That's what it is. It is a direct attack on God himself. Um, and it, you think about it in terms of uh, the context of Israel's act, the direct context, the direct context here of Israel's, um, you know, exodus from Egypt and what was going on there. Um, you see these. Um, he 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 mentions, uh, I think, helpfully in here that not only do we get Christ's interpretation of the text, right? Not only is he going to go back to Genesis 9-6 and say, hey, this is, a, this is a, a foundation for our understanding of this text. But he's also going to point out how Christ fulfills it. So Christ not only interprets the text for us and shows us the deeper understanding of this text. It's more than just what we do, but also how we, you know, what we think and what we believe. And, and so actions and motives, but he also fulfills the text. And um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, Christ was not only innocent of murder, but he was a, a victim of it, right? 
Peter said wicked hands had crucified and slain Jesus in Acts 2, in his sermon there in Acts 2. Um, Christ was innocent of any sin, Hebrews 4.15 and James 2.10. Um, indeed, Christ came to fulfill the law in every way. His obedience was perfect. He did not commit murder. He also did not express hatred or unrighteous anger against anyone. Rather, he loved a people who hated him, Romans 5. Christ was angry, but it was a righteous and holy anger, Ephesians 4. So not only did he um, re- not only did he interpret it more fully for us, but he fulfilled it. And I thought that was very helpful, um, the way he uh, addressed the text here. He also brings out some examples um, you know, uh, regarding Satan, John 8, 4, 4, 8, 40, uh, 844, Satan, who was a murderer from the beginning. And we, in addition, we have, uh, we have been redeemed to reflect the image of Christ, Colossians 3. Um, you see multiple texts here. Christ tells us we are to love our enemies, not hate them, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Um, and love others. There's a positive side to this, right? So if we think the negative side of hate and the, and, and the actual carrying out of that, we think about love, the positive, the antithesis, love, and we're called to carry that out, right, in a positive way. And I think so here in these commandments, you're getting the negative, the apodictic, no, low. But we need to also look at the balance. Uh, what we're called to do is so directly opposite the positive, yes. Okay, moving on quickly uh, to page 8 here for uh, the seventh commandment. You should not commit adultery. We're getting right to it first thing in the morning, aren't we? Murder and adultery. Uh, it doesn't get any, any bolder here, does it? So um, for the sake of time, I'm going to move right through. You can, all of these writers in some way or another are going to address these first things, the meaning of this, the proper meaning, what it forbids, what the commandment encourages, um, I'm going to I'll touch on what Alice says, a little bit on what the podcast guys say. Um, Alice, um, he says, uh, the commandment deals with the greatest menace to the home, unchastity. Strictly interpreted, the word adultery means the violation of the exclusive right of the husband to the affection of his wife. And the primary aim, according to Alice, is to prevent a married woman from bearing to her husband children that are not his. And in terms of that culture in particular, that was a major thing, right? Um, all unchaste thoughts are included, words and actions. The mutual love of husband and wife should be made the figure and type of the relation in which God stands to his people. And he gives several key texts there to focus on. It gives us the best possible illustration of the ideal marriage. Um, he's pointing out the symbolism, uh, and, and all of these writers are going to do this. They're going to they're point to the symbolism of the relationship um, between um, Christ and the church, right? Christ, the bridegroom, church, the bride, right? Um, there is uh, the symbolism and the things here and, and what it, the demands it places upon us are increased beyond just the little, little no statement, just beyond the low, don't do this. There's a whole lot more going on, as you're going to see in the, in the Old Testament, um, with lots of different examples. So let's start down here with uh, on the bottom of page eight. Um, I think it's kind of funny that this guy, he goes, what's not clear here in this commandment, right? What's not clear? Well, actually, he's, he says there's quite a bit that's not clear. 
And, and I thought it was kind of interesting, some of the things he had to say about it. Um, he makes a mention right away that in the Old Testament, adultery was considered the great sin. The great sin. And um, that was the, euth- the euphemism, the great sin. The, 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 and it, once again, the Hebrew word here underlying all this, na'af, that word. But it is used also particularly in texts that are referring to idols and idolatry and idol worship. And that, in terms of our spiritual and our relationship, covenantal relationship with God, is na'af, the great sin, right? What did Israel do? They were supposed to tear down the little temples in the high places, right? They weren't supposed to have any idols before God, right? The great sin of idolatry in terms of the covenant relationship between God and His people. And we see a parallel here in terms of our relationship in the covenant marriage relationship and adultery. And we see Old Testament biblical authors who make these very arguments, right? Um, Who do we see? Uh, Hosea, Ezekiel. They're going to bring these concepts out. Um, adultery and idolatry, I, you know, mentioning it, that this was considered the great sin in b- both of them. Um, he also makes uh, mention that there are three primary trajectories in the Old Testament text. Three primary ways that the Old Testament text talks about the concept of adultery. Number one, a man having um, relations with uh, the wife of another man. Number two, a man having relations with a woman betrothed or engaged to another man. And three, a married woman willing to have relations with a man who is not her husband. Um, and that third example is where we pick up examples in the text about with Hosea and Ezekiel, the concept of spiritual adultery and idolatry, how those things are kind of interwoven and, and fleshed out. Um, what's not included? And I thought this is interesting, the way he addresses this. What's not included is a married man having relations with another woman or a series of women to be additional wives, so long as none of them are married or betrothed to someone else. That's not in Old Testament technically addressed. And we've seen people abuse that, you know, uh, in the past, right? Abuse that idea. But I think it's interesting what, how, the, how these guys uh, address it. Um, it, he says the key is whether um, he says the, the key is whether the woman was married or engaged. So this is no surprise given the patriarchal polygamous culture into which God inserts himself, calling his people out of Egypt. God shows up while they're in Egypt. He talked to the patriarchs before, right? God never tells them, and this is I'm quoting this guy. Uh, Dr. Heiser, now look, I'd really love to have a covenant with you, but you need to uh, you need to not be patriarchal and polygamous in your culture first, and then we could talk about having a relationship. Then we could talk about me using you to kickstart the kingdom of God and all that. I have to start somewhere, so I'm starting with you, but before I can start, you have to not be a, a polygamous, right? So he's, he's, he's pointing out the fact that God's not creating the culture here, but he is inserting himself into it, and he's redeeming it. And he's saying, okay, this is, how you are, this is how you're living now, but that's not the way it's supposed to be, right? And from now on, you need to turn and go this direction. And um, he's inserting himself in. He's, he's um, asserting his authority. 
That's why uh, Abraham doesn't recoil in horror when his wife, you know, his uh, uh, servant Sarah, uh, or when uh, Sarah uh, makes her, you know, offer for Tamar. Um, it's already a part of the culture. God intervenes, though, and he uh, and he changes it. You know, and he, it's like he says here. It's it's almost as if he says, "Look, this wasn't the point, uh, <laughs> Abraham. The point is that Sarah is the chosen one because she's barren, and I'm going to supernaturally enable her to have a child." Right? He is bringing new truth and in, in establishing a greater context and bringing and and pointing out where things are not right. Um, he does the same thing here with Moses. He talks about the patriarchs were polygamous. But we get to Jesus, and what do we get? Once again, Jesus not only reinterprets it, but he fulfills it, right? And so he is going to say, no, you need, there's a deeper reality here, a deeper truth, and it's more, uh, and there's more to it. It's almost like when you read the, you know, the Gospel of John. There's the surface-level narrative, but John is begging you to kind of go deeper, one step deeper, and see the, the structure of his arguments and the, reality, and the symbolism and what's going on, how he's using people and places and institutions and things to make point this deeper picture and we see the same thing here there's this surface level cultural narrative that's going on and god is inserting himself and he's saying this is not right turn and come towards me and be transformed and he is redeeming it and so i think it's it's interesting to see how these writers are pointing out how we can with in an absence of reflecting on the context take these things out of context and what's being said there he's not endorsing this the absence of it in a specific text uh being addressed in a specific text saying you can't have multiple wives that is not because it's not specifically addressed doesn't mean it's uh allowed right it was part of the culture and god comes and redeems it and says no um, and I thought it was interesting how he dealt with that you know obviously he shows why they justified it and the, the issues like uh, social wear, welfare. Uh, he he makes a, almost like a joke. He said, "Well, it was better than putting them out in the desert and saying good luck, right, to the to the surviving spouse." And we talk. He talks at, at length, ad nauseum about um, the Leverite marriage and that whole concept. And he's saying you have to understand. He's, this is not endorsing that idea, but there was a justification in their cultural context, the way they understood things. How that in that time and place and in that setting and situation, they could justify it. However, God says there's a greater perspective here, and you need to see it. And He makes that happen. Um, talks about property issues. He goes on and on. If we go to page 12 here, you can see what Dr. Currid has to say. I mean, He also brings up books like Ruth. Um, you know, he's. Uh, So Dr. Currid, um, Old Testament professor, um, he makes some specific um, examples of what is included. Uh, he, he points out that this is extreme. This is this statute was very striking in its context because of the proclivity or because of the widespread reality of uh, pagan practices of the time. Um, Contextually, this was a stark commandment. It stood out from the cultures around them. Remember, we said before that the first four commandments in particular, even the fifth, are very unique in the ancient Near East at this time. But the last five, right, 
are, you can be found in all kinds of ancient Near Eastern cultures to one extent or another. What makes them unique is the vertical aspect, right? It's because they're pointing to a greater reality of this vertical aspect. They're reflective of reality, uh, that covenant relationship with God. And in and, and those other cultures, it's strictly horizontal, right? It's strictly, okay, thou shalt not kill. Why? Well, it's not right. Or thou shalt not do this or that. And, it, and it's limited. There's not this vertical uh, covenantal uh, reality undergirding all of that that really ramps up the stakes, right? And so, <clears throat> uh, although there is a sense in which some of these uh, last five commandments are found in the culture around them, there's a distinctness because of um, God. Um, he also points out the, the positive side of this. If we could think how stark the negative aspect is of this, this prohibition, this command not to do this, um, the positive side exists as well. Um, just as much we should avoid these, you know, uh, this type's relationships, but we should cherish modesty and chastity and honor marriage. Um, the marriage covenant and its reflection on Christ and his relationship to the church. What do our marriages say about Christ and his relationship to the church, right? Um, Dr. Fesco at RTS, Dr. Fesco um, here on page 13, he goes through, and <clears throat> once again, he's going through the redemptive hor historical aspects of this, and uh, I think it was very helpful, some of the things he says. He talks about, uh, once again, Jesus reinterprets the law, or his interpretation of the law, and this commandment involves both, both actions and motives. So he's, he's, he's saying it's not just what you do, but it's what you believe, what you think. Um, and uh, so it's actions and motives. But he also says, uh, and he points to this vertical aspect that makes it unique among the, the nations around them at the time. Um, moving on to page 14. He, he draws out the specific relationship um, between Christ and the church, between God and Israel. He says, the image of God, here at the top of page 14, the image of God as husband and Israel as unfaithful wife is prominent in the book of Hosea. It's repeated in Isaiah 57, in Ezekiel 23, in Jeremiah 3. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel's idolatry is, linked, is linked, likened to men gathering at a house of ill repute. Jeremiah 5. Um, the seventh commandment deals with the sanctity of marriage here on earth as well as Israel's marriage to God. Just as Old Testament Israelites would be faithful to one another in both thought and deed within marriage, they were to be faithful to their covenant Lord. There is a direct relationship, and it ties all back into this redemptive history that we've been talking about for weeks. These short little commandments are like really powerful zip files. And when you open one up, here comes all the text. And now you have to go trace back through the Old Testament again, that historical narrative, that arc of Old Testament history, and see the implications and the imagery that's being drawn between God and Israel, right? Between what we'll see in the New Testament side of this end of redemptive history, Christ and the church, right? And so we can't just limit ourselves to that more narrow understanding of the, of the, of the Old Testament text. So um, we see here on page 14, Christ is faithful in every way to his bride, the church. He has fulfilled the rule of love, both in a positive and in the negative sense, right? So not only does he interpret it properly for us, but he fulfills it properly for us in both the, 
the, in, in both avoiding the negative and fulfilling the positive, right? Um, in this passage, uh, he notes here um, in the middle of page 14, in this passage, Paul refers back to Genesis 2-4. He's talking about Ephesians 5. Let me read that real quick in Ephesians 5. So men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished... Well, this, is, this must be the KJV version, the S and M. I can't hardly do it. Uh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Ephesians 5. So in this passage, Paul's referring back to Genesis 2, saying that God's creation of the first husband and wife was the portrait of the relationship between his son, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. Right? Paul calls this relationship of marriage a mystery because its purpose was once hidden, but now has been revealed with the advent of Christ. Romans 16 on your radar in the future. So Christ's relationship with the church sheds important light upon the seventh commandment. Uh, he says, I think we are prone to look at the, commandment of God, this, the commandments of God as if he were stingy and only had our misery in mind uh, when he revealed his law at Sinai. Rather, we should view the commandment as a reflection of Christ's faithfulness and his love to and for us, the church's bride. And, um, and he draws some of those things out. I think he... Um, he points out here at the bottom of the page, we must first realize that we are married to Christ, Romans 7. And so we must be faithful to Him. Uh, we must not, like Old Testament Israel, deal faithlessly with God our husband and break the bond of love. We must not commit spiritual adultery by worshiping other gods. As Paul says, we have been joined to Christ so that we may bear fruit for God. So um, he kind of he, he closes this up with some other important things, but... Basically, he says, what kind of message do our marriages send to the world? And they should reflect the righteousness of Christ. So I think um, hopefully this is helpful. I know we went kind of fast going through two commandments. They're very short, four words, but we got 15 pages of notes, and we could spend 15 years talking about it probably. But uh, hopefully it was helpful. Uh, if you get a chance, read through that, uh, the blog. So any questions, I'll close this out in prayer. All right. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and for this time together. Um, we thank you so much for the privilege to study your word with your people on your day. And um, we, uh, we pray you would drive the truths of your word deep into our hearts and help us to live in a way that would reflect the honor and glory that's due your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.